So, last time uh, we started uh, on this new series, which we're calling Five Lies, of course, these are not the only five lies. <laughs> There's uh, plenty of ways of the world that are deceptive and not truthful. Uh, and but what we're what we're really talking about is. Uh, these, these five particular things, and these five things that we talked about last time, we're going to, starting next time, we're going to take one at a time and sort of deal with them. Um, and so I wanted to start by just reviewing what those five lies were. The first is uh, the dice roll themselves. So the... What, what, what the teaching of the world is, is that the universe that we live in is an accident. It's just the consequence of time and chance. That, uh, it's, uh, that all existence is just the product of, of time and chance. Uh, and then <clears throat> the, the second lie is your guess is as good as mine. And we're calling these lies of the modern world, but this is really more moving into the postmodern world where in the, in the modern world, we were pretty confident that we'd figure stuff out. And then after working on figuring stuff out for a couple hundred years, we're way less confident. And so we've begun to lose track of the idea of truth as a solid thing. Um, and so the second line here, your guess is as good as mine, is truth is subjective. Each of us has his or her own truth. Yeah. And that's valid. For a second, uh, yeah. These five lies, are they? They're not on your handout. Okay. <laughs> They're on last week's handout, or last month's handout. That's why I'm reviewing them now. Uh, okay, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I like to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and we'll, these are going to frame the outline for the rest of our study here. So, we'll go through these one at a time starting next time. But the, the third lie is God is everyone's friend. Really, we don't believe much in God, but if there is a God, He, is, he likes everybody. Uh, and so, this, this uh, claim says something like, Everybody's pretty good. Um, and the fourth lie is you got to please yourself, which is the idea that developing self-esteem is really the main thing. Or developing meaning is an individualized exercise. Uh, you got to be true to yourself above everything. Uh, and the fifth lie is there's no way out. So life is whatever you make of it, and then you die, and that's all there is to it. Now, we said a lot more last time about those things, but uh, and we're going to say a lot more about each one of them as we go from here. But today, what our goal is, is to outline our basic strategy for dealing with these would repeat the first for me. Yep. The, the dice roll themselves. Yeah. The dice roll themselves. Everything's 
Everything, all existence is just a time and chance, sort of a grand accident. So uh, today, I, w- I wanted to talk about the three basic things in the postmodern world we live in. One is the challenge of this way of thinking. The second is the opportunity that it presents to us as Christians. And the third is, what's our approach for taking advantage? So I have uh, those three things in your outline here. And I don't want to take too long or dwell too much. This gets very philosophical. Uh, But if we think about what is postmodernism, it is this sort of in the, in the world, in the Western world, after what we call the Enlightenment, we got very confident about the ability of hum- humanity to figure things out. And we applied a logical framework for doing so. Uh, science flourished. Uh, so we did, in fact, figure a lot of things out. Um, and but over time, we got less, we've, we've grown less and less confident. And really, over the course of the 20th century, that confidence has kind of come apart, especially as it relates to how does a person find meaning in life? Uh, and so, uh, what we now call postmodernism developed in this. Uh, as we got to know the world and the people in the world, we suddenly noticed that we're dealing with a great diversity of viewpoints. Nope. Everybody's looking at this from a different angle. And so uh, now, we have, now we're stuck with the problem of how do we decide who's right when... In China, they don't see this the same way as they do in Brazil. And uh, so there's a great diversity. And then, then we move from that into the idea that knowing things is an, is an entirely subjective thing. I know what I know, what I see from my perspective, and that's different from what you know and what you see. And I bring my own preconceived notions when I start looking at the world and figuring out what's going on here and so do you and this became sort of radical like uh, we, we having noticed the subjective component of knowing things we've sort of swung all the way over to say all knowing is only subjective in other words we live in the in the world that is my own imagination of it. And you live in the world that is your own imagination of it. And those don't match and don't have to. Uh, We've sort of untied our thinking from reality. We think reality is not that accessible. 
as a thing itself. And then we, uh, that developed into this sort of pluralism that says everything is, because our, our knowledge of the world is entirely subjective, you know what you know, I know what I know, and that's all we've got. And then we add to that a value of tolerance, and these are all, in some ways, true and good. I mean, it's, it's good to be tolerant, of course. Uh, but the idea that what one person thinks is just as good or valid as what another person thinks, uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, and so modernism sort of unraveled. So what is the, the challenge that we're dealing with in, as Christians living in this environment? The, the first challenge, and now I'm on your handout, postmodern thinking uh, really despises truth claims. In other words, the sin in this world in which we're coming to live now, the one thing that's wrong is to claim that you actually know anything. Or that what you know might be true in the sense that it's valid for anyone besides you. In other words, because this is true, it's true for everybody. Uh, so we exalt uh, in this way of thinking a sort of subjective pluralism. It says, you know what you know, I know what I know. This is where we get expressions like, well, that may be true for you. <laughs> That's, that may be true for you, but my truth, so I have a truth and you have a truth and they have a truth, everyone has their own truth and they don't necessarily need to correspond to each other. As you can see just by talking about it for a second, that means there's really no such thing as truth with a capital T. And so uh, <clears throat> we don't really like it if someone comes along and says, no, this is true, and because it's true, it's true for everybody. Um, this line of thinking tends to gravitate to a society where we understand society in terms of group power dynamics. So if you come along and you say, no, this is true, and it's true for you just as much as it is for me, now I say, what you're doing is oppressing me. This is a power grab. This is all about power. Uh, so truth, capital T, truth, is lost. Truth is relativized. And so this comes to what I'm calling here a radical agnosticism. That means nobody really knows anything. You know what you know, I know what I know, and you can't really be confident in any truth claim. 
The second challenge, obviously I would say this is not compatible with biblical Christianity, which is in fact a worldview, a truth claim. We don't say Jesus is Lord for me. We say Jesus is Lord. We say God is God, not God is God for me. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, we're, we're in the world making a really significant claim that something is actually true. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're noticing that truth is grounded in, in the very nature of God. Well, that doesn't fit with this radical, subjective pluralism. You can't be both of these things. So the second thing is postmodernism postmodern, post is still atheistic. And what I mean by that is just because we unravel the modernist way of thinking like, oh, we're going to figure this out. Humanity is going to evolve into, you know, all-knowing. <clears throat> well, we've given up that project, but it didn't cause us to return to God as the grounding of truth. We're still human beings in a fallen condition, so we still reject the idea of God. It didn't Getting disillusioned with the modern knowledge project didn't cause us to return to theism as a grounding for knowledge. The, the third challenge here is uh, this, this way of thinking that the world is caught up in in our age is an expression of the irrationality of our fallen condition. What do I mean by that? The scripture teaches us that uh, when humanity turned away from God, we, we turned away from everything. We disconnected from reality when we disconnected from God in the fall. And both of the references here, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Romans 2, both of those references refer to the way that the, that the rejection of God affected our thinking, our mentality, our rational capacity. So when we turn away from God, we also disconnect from reality. We can't fully figure anything out. And what we're doing in the postmodern world is since we can't fully figure anything out, we've determined that nothing can be objectively understood. Now, at the same time, we're doing we're objectively understanding a lot of things. I mean, we're still doing science. We're still drawing conclusions. We're still making truth claims, while at the same time, we're, we're talking 
from the other side of our mouth, and we deny that objective reality is really accessible to us. It's not a rational framework. Um, and this leads us to the fourth thing, which is in the postmodern world, it's completely legitimate to believe two things that are not consistent with each other. So we, we develop this sort of piecemeal spiritual life. I would call it, I would say the place where you really see this is in spiritually memes. It's the spiritual meme life. It's where you go on Facebook and somebody's giving you this clever quote, sounds good, sounds true and believable. And the next day, the same person posts something else that also sounds true and believable, but if it's true, then the first thing they posted can't be true. And we just sort of wander around calling it spiritual because it's mystical. Because it has this mysterious element to it, and there are... You, you just hear this in this sort of constant claim that you hear all the time. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What that really means is, I recognize there's a spiritual world that we live in, but I don't want to limit it in any way. I don't want it to become a question of true or false. I want it to be able for this thing to be true today and something else to be true tomorrow. Uh, and so we end up sort of cobbling this spirituality, we call it, uh, but because objective truth is not accessible, coherence is not required. So I can have a worldview that contains contradictory things. Now, the fifth thing I want to say about this, in spite of all the things I've already said about it, is this has a powerful appeal. I think it's a deceptive appeal, but it is a powerful appeal because it rejects truth. It kind of rejects personal responsibility. Uh, it's autonomy run amok. Each one of us is a thing unto himself. So it denies this personality. This is what Luther and Augustine called the ingrown soul. People revolve around themselves. Okay, so that's the challenge. I think also, though, this way of thinking uh, provides a big opportunity uh, that opportunity I would frame in three ways. One is pluralism allows a, allows a, all views a hearing. That's actually, we're turning away from that, I think, in current age, where now pluralism rejects oppressive speech. <laughs> what that means is 
the, the form of pluralism we're coming to is a form that says if you make a hard truth claim, we reject your right to, to speak. We cancel you, to put it in the vernacular. But a, a, a real concept of pluralism should allow everyone's point of view to be heard. Now, that's shifting around today, but even though, even that, if I say, well, your, your truth claim is oppressive, that is itself a truth claim. And so I, you know, we have a, some foothold here to, uh, to make an alternative, an alternative claim for the gospel. Um, cause, even if I say your truth claim is oppressive and therefore should not have a platform, that shows that you're not really a truth pluralist when you say that. Certain points of view are not valid when you want to censor them. The, the second opportunity is that the insecurity of this world creates an opportunity for someone with authentic conviction. Because here's what happens in the postmodern world. Everyone is alone and afraid. It's not a secure way to think. It creates insecurity if nothing's true. If, if there's no connection to truth, that's a world where nothing can be relied on. That is unsafe. That is insecure. And so a person of integrity, a person of truth, grounded in God and Christ, can be a source of security in this kind of world. When we come along and we know something, and we are confident in it, and we live according to it, consistent with it, and we show that that is possible in this world, then that's an opportunity to share the truth. The third is very closely related, and that is loneliness is an opening for genuine love. A world of subjective pluralism is a world of alienation and isolation. If all I have is my own idea of the world around me, I'm alone. I'm isolated. I'm alienated. This, uh, this framework for thinking of reality is a framework for loneliness. And so, uh, if, if the only thing you need is to be true to yourself, if all I need is to be true to myself, I can't count on you. And you can't count on me. Now, nobody really lives this way, but this is the philosophical framework that I believe is coming from hell that uh, the world is developing. Now, in this environment, a person of integrity, a person who speaks the truth, 
in love is a real source of real fellowship, of real life shared. And so there's an opportunity for people who live in the community of the gospel where we actually do know things and we actually do rely on God and on one another and we actually do live according to the ethics that flow from what we know to be true, that's a big opportunity. So how do we approach this problem? The basic approach, and we're going to apply this repeatedly as we go through each one of these five lies, the approach is an approach of grace and truth. Now I'm on the backside of your handout. Approach of grace and truth. What do I mean by grace? I mean trust. How do I exhibit grace in this world? First of all, I'm confident in Christ and in the Bible. Jesus said, "You know, if, you're, if you follow me, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So what we want to exhibit is our confidence in Christ. That, that's a personal matter. We trust him. We don't just believe that he existed one day or that certain things happened. We trust him. And we trust in his word in the scripture. And in that, we have confidence. Uh, the scripture says it gives us boldness uh, to, to know Christ and to know his word. To rely on it and to see the benefit of that reliance in our lives on a regular basis. That's the first thing. We are, in this way, recipients of grace. When we trust Christ, we know his grace. Then the second thing is, how do we reflect that? We, well, here's my advice. Be real. A real friend and real friendly. If I'm safe in Christ, I can risk loving the people around me. I can, I know not to expect more than they're prepared to give. And I don't need it from you because I have it from him. And so I can become a source of love in the world, not just a sink. And so uh, here in the body of Christ, we can think together about how to gang up with love, uh, to love people. And when I say this is part of our approach, I don't, I don't want us to think, oh, well, we need to be loving in order to sell Jesus to people. That's not what I mean. This is not a manipulation. And that's why I start with this expression, be real. This is about the simple expression of who we actually are in Christ. And so it's, it's what we do, whether anyone responds properly to it or not. Whether people come around to seeing the truth or not. 
We express the love of Christ because the love of Christ needs expression. And it's good and right and uh, what we ought to do under any conditions. Right? So this is not a manipulation. We don't bless those who persecute us to get them to stop persecuting us. We bless those who persecute us because that's the way of our master who we love and because we love him and because we know his love we want that love to shine in the world. And so we bless those who persecute us. Whether they stop persecuting us or not. This is not a, a means to some other end. Though we do pray that when people see our reflection of the love of Christ, they will see Christ. But that, of course, is a supernatural work of God. People don't just see Christ because we make him visible. Because, as the scripture says, in that text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, scripture says people are blind to Christ. So, just the fact that he can be seen doesn't actually enable anyone to see him. So, what is the third grace element of our approach? That is to pray. Because for anyone to come to the true knowledge of Christ, they must experience the work of God in them to see Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit to bring the new birth that enables them to see Christ for who he is and therefore trust Christ. So, talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. Recognize the spiritual nature of this thing we're engaging in. We're, we're entering into the competition of worldviews. We're, we're going into the world to say, this is how we see it. And when we say that, we mean this is how it is. And we're doing that in a world that doesn't, it's not comfortable with that kind of statement. So we begin with grace. We're confident in what we know, in who we know. We, we are real. We take care of the people around us. We bless people who hurt us. We listen before we talk. So one of the things this leads to is, well then, how do we stand for truth? So that's the second element. And I'm, I'm, I want to encourage this approach, this sort of share and compare approach. It begins with listening. Begins with listening. How do you have a conversation with people whose point of view you really have no respect for? You know what I'm talking about? 
I think these days we encounter this most often in the political world, you know, where I have a particular political point of view and some progressive, sorry, that this is, I'm just revealing my own self, you know, some progressive <laughs> declares their point of view as though everyone believes it. I don't believe it. I have a different point of view. I could be called a conservative in politics. Uh, and so, how do I have a conversation? If I'm talking politics, how do, how do I, Mr. Conservative, have a conversation with uh, Miss Progressive? That's a real challenge, isn't it? Well, from a, from a biblical Christian point of view, I don't start with an argument. I don't start with, that's stupid. I might think that. I might hear some expression of that point of view I don't agree with and think, man, you really got to be stupid to believe that. You know what happens if you have an argument? You know this because you've experienced it. You've especially experienced it if you have any siblings. <clears throat> and you've had a disagreement with your little brother. What matters when you have an argument? Who wins? That's what matters. And what we're doing in our political life these days is we're having a big fight, a big argument, and what matters is who wins. And what is lost is what is the truth. So my first suggestion here is start with listening. And really listen. I like to say it like this, I want to ask myself, why would an otherwise rational person believe that? Now, how am I going to find the answer to my question? Why would an otherwise rational person believe that crazy, stupid nonsense? That's my question. How am I going to find out the answer to my question? Ask him. Ask them. Because I really want to know, not because I want to formulate an argument against their stupid beliefs. I really want to know, how did you arrive at that conclusion? How did someone arrive at the conclusion that my truth and your truth is a sensible way to look at the world? So, here's a list of questions. I could ask, do you have any spiritual beliefs? It's a simple question. You know, most people these days have beliefs that they regard as spiritual. Tell me what they are. I'm curious. What are your spiritual beliefs? And then listen to the answer. Like you really want to understand 
their point of view of things. Because, you know, before you go to talking to somebody, it's a really good idea for you to really understand that person. You don't, you can't really effectively communicate with somebody if you don't know where they're starting from. So, do you have any spiritual beliefs? How do you find meaning and purpose in life? That is a hard question. And honestly, I really want to know. I think many people, it tends to be younger people, I guess, have given up on the idea of finding meaning and purpose in life. Maybe don't even believe there is such a thing. But that also would be good to know. I asked a question like this. Now I'm moving. You see, what do you think about who Jesus was? Mm-hmm. With that question? Okay. Because it's hard to understand. What do you think about Jesus? Oh. Jesus is. That's true. What do you think? I could rephrase the question to just say, what do you think about Jesus? But Jesus is a process. Correct. Well, I, I agree with you, and I, I guess I would want to rephrase my question, what do you think about Jesus? But. Also, the point here is to find out what they think. It's not, it's not really to... I mean, this, obviously this is a question about Jesus, so it's more specific than those other questions. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. And this phrases it in terms of, say, history, who Jesus was. But, you know, yeah. I, I, I think... Maybe I just say, what do you think about Jesus? Because my goal here really is to help a person tell me what they think. What was your effect on that? How does he act in his today? But he still can be the same either way. Correct. He's constant. That's correct. The scripture says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this question is not not just, I'm not asking the question, who was Jesus? Because we're going to hash out the truth of the matter. I'm asking, what do you think? So, right. So, either way, the focus then, what I'm trying to do at this point is ask a big question and let someone tell me what they think. I think my concern is that the question makes Jesus accept instead of the Yeah. So, if we are a church, a group of people focused on God and Christ, so just so change the question. The the goal here is is to elicit yeah. someone's thinking. Right. 
so I am trying to understand their view of the world. And I, I think it's wise to say, well, I don't want to inject that process with something that's incorrect. Like, you know, Jesus might have been different then and he is, than he is now. But uh, so, yeah, okay. Ask it a different way. Ask, what do you think about Jesus? And then it's really wide open. What do you think about the Bible? I think you will encounter in the world today, in the Western world even, a lot of blank response to that question. Because I think in in the world today, many people have never given the Bible any thought. But then they might tell you that. They might say, well, I really don't think about the Bible. I don't think the Bible is really relevant. Okay, that's good to know. How do you decide what to believe in? So I've sort of asked the question, what do you believe in? I might ask them questions like, how big of a, how big of a deal is that in your everyday life? Is it you have these spiritual beliefs, do they end up mattering a lot when you go to work? Or not much? Oh, what I'm really trying to do is get to know somebody and let them tell me who they are and where they come from. That's the share part of this equation. Then the second thing is I want to take down false beliefs but not the people who hold them. (laughs) Now we're getting tricky, are we not? The scripture says Jesus was full of grace and truth. Being full of grace means he is full of liberty for others. In other words, He's going to tell them what's true, and he's going to say this is true, and and as this consequence, and if you don't believe, you will die in your sins. He says stuff like that, but he says it in a way that doesn't actually reject people. Uh, We are are commanded in Ephesians to speak the truth in love. Okay, so we're going to take down a false belief, and try to do this without taking down the person who holds the false belief. In other words, I don't want to say, you must be stupid if you believe that. Because really smart people believe lots of stupid things, including most of us Christians. We are not exempt from believing stupid things. We do too. And so what I want to what I want to argue with is the claim, not the person who's making the claim. And that's hard to figure out. But here what we're gonna do as we go forward is we're gonna apply these three C's. When we're talking about what how good is it? point of view, a worldview, a perspective on reality. And by the way, this is a mirror 
So when I'm in the world thinking about the quality of worldviews, I ought to think about the quality of my worldview as much as anyone else's. And I need to refine my own way of thinking along these lines. The first quality of a good worldview is it's comprehensive. It covers everything. Well, nobody's all the way home on this, are they? Does it allow for everything we know? Or are likely to find out? Wow. How can anything be that? Is it a thorough explanation? Does it leave out any important aspects of reality or experience? So this is a challenge I would pose to the atheist worldview. You know, throughout all of human history, people have had a sense of a immaterial reality in, behind, under, and around the material reality we live in. Every human, almost every human being has had some concept of the spiritual nature of things. But the modern or postmodern naturalistic worldview denies that. To me, it's just a simple reductionist move. It's saying, because we can't understand that, we'll just deny that it is even there to be understood. Okay, so it's not comprehensive. It leaves out a lot of reality, a lot of experience. This is the move of the development of science as a governing principle of knowledge. Um, we, we find it useful to leave God out of the equation while we study trees so that we don't just give it a magical explanation to start with. And, and we've found it very useful to understand nature in its own cause and effect terms. And then at some point we decided That's the only way to understand it. So we left God out in a sort of useful thought experiment, and then we decided on the basis of that, that there is no God. Okay, well, that ignores a lot of, that ignores a lot of things. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not comprehensive. The second thing is, is it consistent? In other words, is it internally coherent? Are you disagreeing with yourself? And in the postmodern world, the postmodern way of thinking, there's a lot of disagreeing with yourself. If I say, uh, if I say truth is relative, That's not a relative's truth claim. That's a, that's a absolute truth claim. If I say there is no absolute truth, 
There are no absolutes. That itself is an absolute. That is not a coherent statement. So I'm only using that to, as an illustration of what we mean when I say consistent. Is it internally consistent? The third thing is, is it competent? In other words, do, can you generate a meaningful ethical system from it? Can you tell people how they ought to behave? Or how they ought to live? Does it recognize human agency? This is a problem also with uh, naturalistic, materialistic uh, worldviews, is if the world is a random accident, what on earth can be your basis for holding anyone responsible for anything they do? If all there is is cause and effect, then you only did what you must have done. You can't, how can we hold you responsible? Uh, but nobody says we shouldn't hold each other responsible. So can we live by that? Uh, is it competent? So these three things we're going to try to apply as we go through the, each one of these five lies. The third step in this strategy is to exalt the truth. So I've asked people what they think. I'm helping them think about what they think. That is number two. And the third thing is, I'm exalting the truth about God, about humanity, and about the gospel. I'm declaring what the scripture declares. I'm making the truth claims of the gospel. So that's our basic approach. This has gone on now for quite a little while, so we're going to stop there. Um, The, the second page here is the more important page. It's the strategy that you might employ for dealing with anybody who believes anything. And why should they believe what you believe? Why do you believe it? That's a good thing for you to develop. And why should anyone else believe it? The beginning point here is, if anything is actually true, then it's true, and it's not relative. <laughs> it's not true for one of us, and not true for somebody else. Uh, if it's true, it's true. And in the Christian faith, we believe in a sort of critical realism in the world. We believe the world is a thing that is real and that we can understand and know. The other people are real and we can understand and know them. That God is real and we can understand and know him. And at least for the present, not completely, not fully, not entirely, but truly. All right, I'm going to stop talking and find out if anyone has any questions. This discussion came up in a lot of years. Yeah. And they kept talking about different people's truths. Yeah. And there was a young man who graduated from Catholic College. Interesting. And he stood up and he said, I just can't stand this anymore. There is one truth. 
Yeah, and I think we might as well go on and acknowledge, I think it's a simple fact that our comprehension of the truth it has a subjective component. I, you know, that that's why we call it critical realism, not just realism. You know, that's why we... Uh, we say we're engaged in the world, but I don't deny that it's me, a person who's engaged with the world with a lot of preconceived notions that uh, I must have in order to even look at. Right. So we do have different perspectives, but we do want to notice that the reality of things is a thing, that there is an objective reality. Yeah. Sorry. No problem. What's the definition of the Bible? Sorry? What's the definition of the Bible? Of the Bible? Uh, well, the... Uh, the IBC have only the New Testament? No. How can you talk about the Old Testament? you talk about the church? Sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we preach through a particular text, but yeah, we, we, we would... Uh, we would call the, the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, the Word of God, the Scripture. And uh, the 66 books, to be specific, that were canonized in the early church. All of that we regard as the Word of God and entirely true in anything that it asserts. I, w- I wouldn't want to claim that the Bible addresses all issues. <laughs> so that's why I say it's entirely true about anything that it asserts. In other words, whatever it really says is true. And we do continue to have the problem of what does it really say. And there again, we have a problem of our own subjective evaluation and interpretations but the thing is a real thing. And we're, we're continuing to work on the project of correctly understanding it. But we believe there is a correct understanding. Yeah. Well, if there's no other questions, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together these things to think about. Lord, help us in our interactions with people to be gracious and truthful, to follow the example of Christ in these things. And uh, thank you for these men and their time together. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.